Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Welcome to the May 2020 Mailbag Bonus Pod of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. That's me. You've got me. And you're in this episode. If you went to Apple, did a five-star review, ask a question, and I'm going to answer it once a month. And now it's time for May. Great questions. I appreciate everybody's loyalty. Heading toward a 1,000 reviews. Maybe we'll do something cool for the person who does the thousandth review, give away a piece of memorabilia for my career, something interesting. So what I love about the questions is that they're so diverse and they make me think, and there is no question I will not answer. If you don't hear your question, it means we didn't have time, but I really do love reading them and thinking about them. I'm going to get right into it. And right off the top, can you describe the moment when you felt the least confident you have ever been, both professionally and personally? And the follow-up was, can you describe the moment when you felt the most confident professionally and personally? So that is a question. It will take some time. It's got some stories. Let's start with the negative. The moment when I felt the least confident professionally. Well, I think you know that the story of my getting into baseball was through Jeffrey Loria, who was my stepfather. And I was 31 years old. I'd been working at Morgan Stanley on Wall Street, having run a business in Europe called News Travels Fast, having gone to law school and passed the bar. I'd always been a confident person. I'd always tried to walk the line between confident and cocky in my professional life. I always went after what I wanted professionally. And I would get it more often than I wouldn't. I certainly had failures along the way. And I certainly had moments where my ego would get checked or my modus operandi would get checked. And someone who I respected would talk to me and say something to me. And that is a lesson that isn't often taught and even less frequently paid attention to, which is finding people you respect asking them questions, and then listening to the answers. And once you listen to the answers, actually acting on the advice. So it was December 1999, my first day with the Montreal Expos, having negotiated the deal, moved to Montreal. Soon after, I knew that I was very young. I thought that I was qualified to run a team because a team to me, it was just like a business and I'd run a business. I had been an employee. I'd been an employer. I understood that the product was baseball and players and there were sales and marketing and finance. I understand that I had to work with Major League Baseball and the commissioner, Bud Selig, the president and COO, a man named Robert Dupay, other owners. I'll never forget the first owners meeting I went to where I felt absolutely inadequate 
being in the room with people like George Steinbrenner and Jerry Reinsdorf and Fred Wilpon and people I had heard of and looked up to having not known them as role models or mentors, having not known them. And early on, we've discussed on Nothing Personal how contraction was a part of my life in Montreal, where there was concern that the team was going to be taken away. And the owner, Jeffrey, had no interest in leaving baseball. He told me that we needed a solution. And the solution was to either move the Expos or find another team to buy because he wanted to be an owner in Major League Baseball. And I was pretty aggressive in trying to get him that. And part of being aggressive and working on the deal that eventually ended up with him buying the Marlins and selling the Expos is that I made a scene several times in owners' meetings, both during the meeting, before meetings, after meetings, and I was new to the game. I had no standing. You know, fast forward to 2017, I was fired as the second longest tenured Major League Baseball president, a veteran. Many people were younger than I at that time, but remember, I was very young. This was before it was cool to be young and in charge. Right now, there's so many young GMs, and it's becoming a much younger person's game. And I would overcompensate trying to make sure that people didn't just look at me as a beneficiary of nepotism, that people didn't just look at me as though I were too young or not qualified. So I would overcompensate in many ways. And that obviously changed as the years went on. One time, I got a phone call from Bob Dupay, the president and COO. And he said, David, I'm going to be in Florida. And uh, I'd like to meet you. And this was maybe during spring training when I was in Jupiter with the Expos and I drove down to Fort Lauderdale and met in a airport Sheraton hotel. And when you're called to meet with the president of baseball, the assumption is that there's going to be conversations about all the things that were going on with Montreal, with Miami. We were always the subject of conversation. I was always in touch with the commissioner's office because there was The franchise was in trouble, both Florida, both Montreal. It was just trouble, like the music man starts with T. So I go into the hotel. I'm nervous. I don't know what to expect exactly. And he meets me in the lobby bar not to drink. He was getting on a plane. And we sit down. And I know exactly where I was sitting. They were those big chairs where when you're a small person like I am, it's a big chair where your elbows can barely reach the armrests and you sink into it which gives Bob such a home court advantage because he just looks more imposing when I'm sunk into a chair. To this day, I've never asked him whether that was a purposeful choice or not, but I wasn't sure what the meeting was about. I hadn't asked him. He asked for it, and I went, and he proceeded to say hello. We shook hands back in the day when shaking hands was how people greeted each other, and he said, David, I want to talk to you about your career in baseball that is just starting. And I want to talk to you about the fact that you're not liked right now and that there are people in baseball, owners and other team presidents and people in the commissioner's office who think that you're coming on too strong, who think that you are being too aggressive, who think that you don't realize your place and that you have to work your way up in the hierarchy of Major League Baseball while you are the person in charge of the Expos and that is understandable, and you've earned that right and been named to that position, when it comes to dealing with Major League Baseball, you do not 
have that position. And I listened, and I must admit that I I heard what he said, and I just want to tell you the reaction and why I felt the least confidence I've ever felt. I started tearing up, and I felt myself that I wanted to cry. And the reason I wanted to cry is not that he was telling me this. It's that I knew it, but I had been afraid to admit it because I felt as though that would that feeling of lack of self-confidence would emanate from the very pores of my skin and would make me less effective. And I needed to be effective as a leader of the Expos Marlins and the transaction and the franchise swap. And I wanted to be looked at as, as deserving and worthy in the eyes of the commissioner and all the people in baseball. And we spent about 45 minutes together. And I was honest with him. And I, and I told him he could see that I was upset And he said, you've got a long career ahead of you. The question is, what do you do from today? And that was an amazingly perfect question to ask. And part of what's formed me in my ability to try to give advice to younger people now is now I'm the older one, is trying to explain to people that it is okay not to know everything. It's okay to not have full confidence in what you're doing. The question is, what do you do with that? And what I did with it, is I left with a pretty big piece of humble pie. That's actually not true. It was an entire pie of humility and humbleness. And I made a commitment that I would try to be more effective than I'd ever been, but with a different aura and not try to say how good I was, but prove how good I was through my actions and through being successful in running a business, however you define that. And I've talked about Bob, I've talked with Bob about that moment many times, and we've now been close for 21 years. And I've spoken to him about that moment. And what's interesting is his memory of that moment is different than mine. He remembers the conversation. He remembers what he said. He doesn't remember me exhibiting that feeling of no confidence, that feeling of fear and sadness and and just being deflated. But what he does remember is how I changed over the years and grew over the years into the executive I became, into the person I became on and off the field for better or for worse. But that was the moment as I look back that I was the least confident ever in my professional life. And it segued perfectly. And it really, there was a bow tie around the moment that I was the most confident professionally. And the years passed and fast forward now, this is hard to believe, but I just want to say that I'm recording this and I just got, and I don't know how to show this because it's not a video. I literally just got a text from Robert Dupay. Literally, I'm showing a camera, but no one is watching. So why am I doing that? I'm going to take a screenshot of it because it's so funny that that happened. Mikey's listening and he's producing this episode with Coca. And uh, I don't think that he believes what I just did, but I have a picture of it. So that segues into the, the time that I was the most confident professionally. And that is when Rob Manford was elected commissioner. I want to tell a quick story about Rob being commissioner and how that went. You've heard that Rob Manford 
ran for commissioner after Bud Selig was retiring against Tim Brosnan and Tom Werner, who was the owner and is the owner of the Red Sox. Tim Brosnan ran Major League Baseball properties for many, many years. And I quickly knew that Rob Manford was who I wanted to support for commissioner. And I worked very hard to help him get elected. And I want to tell the story of the day in Baltimore that he did get elected. This would take up the entire pod. Uh, but I want to just tell you part of the story and there, there'll be more to come in future episodes. The way you become commissioner is you have to get 23 votes. And we had a meeting and that was the meeting to elect a new commissioner. There was a lot of talk that there would be no election because no candidate would get the necessary 23 votes because there were a block of owners who were fighting to stop Rob from being commissioner because they felt as though Rob was not tough enough on labor. It was led in, in mostly by Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, who will tell you that he is now a fan of Rob. But in an honest moment, he will tell you that he lobbied and worked tirelessly to make sure Rob was not elected commissioner. And he would have taken anybody but Rob because Jerry is a much more hardline labor guy who would be fine with locking out the players and making sure that the era of prosperity and lack of, uh, of labor wars and, and labor peace that baseball has enjoyed since 94, 95, that it would stop because to him, the deals have never been fair from the owner's side. Ironically, there's the labor situation going on now and, wait to see how that ends, but hopefully with baseball so I can shave. But that day we had an owner's meeting. And what that means is that each team is represented by two or three people. And at the head of the table, uh, at the head of the room is Bud Selig surrounded by two people from Corn Ferry who were there to manage the process. And then there was a man named Tom Ostertag who would keep track of the votes and you would vote by secret ballot. It then would be counted and then the front table would say, Bud Selig would say, there is no white smoke. There has not been enough votes for a commissioner. The vote was blank. So what's going on before this meeting is a lot of politicking and lobbying. Rob Manford is in a suite with a bunch of other employees, including Dan Hallam, who's now his deputy commissioner, and Tony Petiti, who's now his deputy commissioner. Tim Brosnan was in a separate suite. Tom Warner was in a separate room. And I was texting back and forth with Rob and with Dan Hallam and with Pat Courtney, who was uh, the head and still is of, of public relations and many other things in baseball. And I was counting votes and I was texting back and forth. And I actually have still on my phone. Now I'm under pressure because I didn't find it because I didn't think I'd tell this story, but I have the text string that went back and forth on this date uh, in August of six, August 16th of 2014. And it was a story of how we got the votes. So the first vote came and voted for Rob Manford. It was not enough to get him elected. I found out then we took a break I found out who the no votes were, and I started talking to the no votes, one of whom were the Washington Nationals, Ted Lerner. Why are you a no vote? And he was a no vote because of the disagreements he had with Rob over the dealings of Mass and the network and the fight that he had with Peter Angelos and still has to this day over the network uh, and how much money the Nationals will get paid. So I was texting back and forth with Rob and Dan. We don't have the Nationals. We don't have the Diamondbacks. We don't have... 
the White Sox. We, I can't get to 23. So Bud Selig was aware that there was no one for 23 votes, so he didn't want to take another vote. But it was convinced that he would take another vote, so we sit back in our seats, another vote happens, and still no 23 for Rob Manford. So I get up, and I decide that I'm going to get Ted Lerner. I'm going to try to strike a deal to get Ted Lerner to vote for the Nationals, uh, to vote for Rob. So I go speak to Ted Lerner, and then Jerry Reinsdorf interrupts that meeting. And so I pulled Ted aside and Mark, his son aside, who's now the control partner. And Jerry had interrupted saying, you're not going to get him to vote. Yes, it's not going to happen. Ted Lerner will not vote. And Jerry said, David, you're not getting a commissioner today. It's not going to be Rob. And Jerry was very clear. And Jerry's a very powerful owner. And he said, David, this will not get done. So, I reported back to Rob. I said, we got a problem here. I don't think it can happen. We're going to have to negotiate with Ted and see if there's anything we can give him to get his vote, if there's any deal we can make with Masson to try to figure out how to change his mind. Meanwhile, Ted was saying, I will not change my mind. So I'm figuring out what to do. Meanwhile, I see an entire group of owners who are getting together who are saying that, listen, you better find, this is going to be delayed. We're going to break up this meeting right now. And Rob had come to grips with the fact that he would not be elected commissioner that day. And I said, no, let's try one more thing. I go up to Ted Lerner and I say, Ted, how can I get you to not not vote? And I said it in those exact words. How can I get you to not not vote for Rob? And we came up with a plan that Ted Lerner would give up his vote to Mark Lerner. So he would give up his Nationals vote to his son, Mark Lerner, who was also a co-owner. And I spoke to Mark Lerner. Mark Lerner was willing to agree to vote for Rob. And I knew that we then would have a 23rd vote. Jerry Reinsdorf had been told as part of this plan that Ted Lerner would still not vote for Rob Manford. But we didn't say anything about the Mark Lerner part of this. So Jerry Reinsdorf was positive we didn't have the votes. I went to Bud Selig. I said, Bud, call a vote right now. And Bud said, David, I'm not calling a vote. We don't have the votes for Rob. I said, Bud, please trust me. Call the vote right now, right now, because owners were milling around. I said, do it this second. Bud looked at me and said, David, I'm not calling this vote. I said, Bud, please trust me. I'm texting Rob. I said, Rob, we have this plan and it can work. Call the vote. Bud said, fine. He speaks to the corn ferry guys. They call everyone back in the room. People sit down. Jerry Reinsdorf is sitting right across the aisle from me. He's looking at me and he's saying, what are you doing? This is still a guarantee. No, you're wasting our time. I looked at Jerry. I said, Jerry, it's going to be different. And Jerry looked at me and said, it's not different. There's no 23. The vote, Bud calls the vote. Bud looks at the pieces of paper He looks up and he says, gentlemen, we have a new commissioner of Major League Baseball. Jerry Reinsdorf turned purple. The vote was 23 to 7 because Mark Lerner voted for Rob Manford. But Ted Lerner could still say, I never voted for Rob Manford. And for me, I didn't care. I've never felt more confident professionally ever in my life. I texted Rob and I said, we did it. You are 
the commissioner of baseball. Congratulations. And the way the text chain went is I said, I just talked to Bud. I told him he's got to talk to Lou, who owned the Oakland A's at the time. And if there's any hope on Lerner, I'm going to keep trying. We're only at 20. And then I said, what? 30-minute break. We are still at 20. And then I talked about what I thought was going on with the Brewers, what I thought was going on with the Tampa Bay Rays and other no votes. And I said, we've got to try to work on the A's. But I said, let's see if we can get Lerner. Then it was a vote of 22. And then the vote came of 23. And I simply texted to Rob, yes, with exclamation points. And after that, it was never reported. I don't think I've ever told this. The final vote that was reported for the commissioner of Rob Manford to, for him to be elected was 30 to zero. And the reason that's the case is once Rob had won 23 to seven, a motion was made for a revote so that we could show unanimity to the outside world that it was a 30 to zero vote that we were supporting this new ninth commissioner in the history of Major League Baseball. So a new vote was taken and it was 30 to zero, but it didn't matter. We announced 30 to zero, but the reality is the vote was 23 to seven. So I was feeling pretty confident. That was my most confident moment until two minutes later when after the vote was coming, was done, Jerry Reinsdorf walked up to me in front of many other people and he looked at me and he said, you really got me, David. I don't lose these too often and you got me. And that is the most confident I've ever felt professionally because I knew that I was a part of history and Rob has proven to be a commissioner who has helped the game of baseball. He's obviously involved in a lot of issues. It's really hard to be commissioner, but that's the story of describing the moment that I felt the most confident professionally and the least confident professionally. Now I want to talk about personally, you asked me to be personal and what's the least confident I've ever felt personally. And uh, I do want to answer that. The least confident I've ever felt personally is when I was back in middle school. I was, it wasn't called bullying back then, but I was always short and I always had a big mouth. I would always figure that the best way to make up for being small and not the best athlete was just to talk a lot and get in trouble a lot and not by doing anything so bad, but by talking out in class and getting detention, I'd be thrown out for being sarcastic and being the class clown. And I remember that all I wanted was to play basketball. It was my dream. And I've told you this story before on Nothing Personal, so I'll make it quick and just tell you that as I grew up into high school, I went to Horace Mann where you were in the elementary school from first through sixth and then the high school from seventh through twelfth. When I tried out for freshman basketball as a ninth grader, that's the least confident I ever felt once I looked at the board. I'll never forget this. The way you found out whether you made the team and I went through tryouts, I was hitting my shots and I was hitting my free throws and I was passing the ball and dribbling the ball because I was, I was good at sports, but not great at any of them, but good at all of them. And they would post it on the athletic bulletin board and you're told, all right, the teams are now posted. So people would rush to the board. It wasn't like you got an email or you got a text or there was a website or something. It was literally a typed, and I don't mean with the computer, like typed. 
And I looked at freshman basketball and I went down the list and it was alphabetical and there was no S for Samson. And I looked at it three times and I remember I looked up, I looked down and I was so devastated to have been not made a member of that team. And that is by far the least confident I've ever felt because I felt that it was personal. I felt that the coach was being against me personally because I was short. And that is the worst I've felt. And believe me, in this day and age, I am quite aware of my privilege. I am quite aware that when I tell you that the least confident I've ever felt personally involves something so unimportant, so having nothing to do with real life. At that moment, freshman basketball was the world to me. And as I've gotten older, I realized that elementary school, middle school, high school, you know what? Being the most popular guy in high school often is inversely correlated to being the most popular guy in the real world. Often people peak in high school. There's movies. John Hughes made a career out of that, the movie maker. So that's the least confident I've ever felt personally because I thought that I am being accused or I'm being put down for something that I can't control. The irony of what we're going through as a society right now and what's been going on for hundreds of years and how clueless I was back then to the world outside of my privileged bubble is that my least confident moment personally was a moment that many people would kill and die for. And I'm sensitive to that, but I wanted to tell you the truth about that age of that moment personally. The most confident I've ever felt personally is also an athletic-related moment. In 2006, when I became the first ever team president to compete in and finish the Hawaii Ironman, that's the world championship where everybody is a champion, and I got in as a media athlete because they did a story on me as a president of a team doing the Hawaii Ironman and the insanity of swimming 2.4 miles and then biking 112 miles and then running a marathon of 26.2 miles all in the same day. You have 17 hours to finish. And once you do, you're an Ironman. And two things happened that made, made me, that's the most common I've ever felt personally, is I was doing the math the entire race. There were, uh, I did it with a good friend named Brad, and we had flown a bunch of family and friends to the island of Kona in Hawaii to watch us compete. And there was a tremendous amount of pressure. There were cameras following me for many parts of the race. And of course, when cameras were following me, I would pretend to bike harder or run, even though I was so tired, I couldn't function. And when the cameras would go to a different athlete, I would start walking or start barely pedaling. And uh, when I did the math and I realized somewhere around mile 18 of the marathon, I had eight miles to go. I said, even if I crawl, I'm going to finish within 17 hours. I ended up crossing the finish line in 15 hours, 36 minutes, 43 seconds. With So I had an hour and 23 minutes and 24 seconds to spare or 17 seconds, sorry, 15, 36, 43. So a minute, 23, uh, 17 to spare. So I knew I'd done the math in my head and I was going to finish. And as I was crossing the finish line with my family back at that time, you could cross the finish line in Hawaii with family and holding hands and crossing. I just felt so confident that I was able to do something personally that I set my mind out to do that was so hard to accomplish. And I thought about that time in ninth grade when someone else had control over my ability to feel confident. And I thought about what it meant for me to be in control of my level of confidence. And that's the most confident that I remember feeling personally. And that 
went all the way through to when I got the Iron Man logo tattooed on my ankle a few weeks later. And uh, that tattoo I look at each day because it's on my ankle. So I see it each day and it's the Iron Man logo with Kona 06. And I think about that there really is nothing that we can't do. All you have to do is say to yourself over and over again positively that you can do it. The first step is always the hardest. And so many people don't accomplish their goals professionally or personally, but it's not because they can't, it's because they don't even start. They don't even take the first step. There's a lot of first steps to be taken in the world right now, and I'm proud to say that after the first step, the rest do come. So thank you for those questions describing the moment when I felt the least confident, the most confident personally and professionally. Okay. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Next question. This is amazing that someone asked this. I was a part of in, do the math, 19... 18 seasons times 162 games, plus some playoff games, plus, let's say, 30 spring training games. And I remember quite a few games, but not many. Someone asked a question, what are your memories of the 20-inning game in Miami on the last Sunday in April versus the St. Louis Cardinals? The most random question in the world. What are my memories of the 20-inning game? And I knew immediately <clears throat> That game was one of the, if not the craziest game next to game six of the NLCS, what you call the Bartman game, what I call the eight-run eighth game that brought us to 3-3 three, three in the National League Championship Series before we won the pennant the next day. This was a 20-inning game. Excuse me. This is a 20-inning game that happened on a Sunday the year we ended up winning the World Series, but this was back in April. It was April 27th. And I remembered immediately several things. The first thing that came to my mind is that it was a getaway day. And what a getaway day means in baseball is that you're really trying to 
have a quick game so you can quickly get on the plane and get to your next city. And we were going to Phoenix the next day to play the Diamondbacks with no day off. And there's a rule when you grow up in New York City, which is you never say, wow, there's no traffic on the West Side Highway. Oh my God, the traffic's moving great on the Long Island Expressway. You never say that because immediately there'll be an accident and you will be stuck in standstill traffic for two hours. I, during that game, and I remember it because I remember what happened right after. I said, we are in great shape. This game is flying by. We are going to get on that plane. We're going to be in Arizona in time for dinner. Lo and behold, the minute I said it, I got yelled at by the president at the time of baseball operations, Larry Beinfest, sitting there watching the game with me and Mike Hill, the current president of baseball ops. They looked at me quite angry. And wouldn't you know it, the Marlins gave up three runs in the ninth inning, in the top of the ninth. So we were down five runs and everything was fine. We're going to lose the game. It's horrible. All of a sudden, Ramon Castro, Luis Castillo, and Mike Lowell, I will never forget this, three home runs in the bottom of the ninth and we tied the game. 5-5. Five, five. I mean, a five-run ninth tied the game. So they're looking at me, and extra innings on a getaway day is your worst nightmare. We go to the 10th, the 11th, the 12th. The game continues. I'm on the phone to in-game entertainment because we're about to approach the 14th inning. And we said, all right, it's the 14th inning. We got to do another seventh inning stretch. So we did another seventh inning stretch in the 14th inning. Is this really possible that this is happening? Meanwhile, the Cardinals and the Marlins were throwing out everybody, every pitcher we can find. Dustin Hermanson pitched and Steve Klein for the St. Louis Cardinals. And the reason I remember that is the reason Dustin Hermanson and Steve Klein were on the Cardinals in 2003 is that I had traded them to the Cardinals when I was with the Expos in order to get Fernando Tatis Sr. and a pitcher named Britt Reams, who is more famous for his exploits off the field than on the field. Great guy, though. God, what did he have fun in Montreal? Britt Reams and Scott Strickland would go out every night in Montreal, bless their souls. But we got Fernando Tatis Sr., who, by the way, you may know his son, is now Fernando Tatis Jr. Well, it was then, too. He is now the up-and-coming, maybe best young player in baseball for the San Diego Padres. So Dustin Hermanson pitched a bunch of innings. Steve Klein got the win that day. And the reason I remember Steve Klein getting the win is I had known Steve. We had him with the Expos, and I was looking at him while he was pitching, and he was pitching the 20th inning. And we lost that game because Carl Pavano, who was our starting pitcher the next day, was forced to come in and pitch. So we're on the phone to the minor leagues. We're trying to figure out how many pitchers we need to call up. Who's going to pitch the next day in Arizona? We end up going with a guy who's in jail right now. His name is Justin Wayne. He ends up starting the next day for us in Arizona. We flew to Phoenix. I remember we lost that game. I remember being worried during that game about the flight attendants and the pilots and whether or not they would have to delay us even more because they've been on duty. How many hours can they be on duty before they're off duty? Are we going to get a new crew? Do we need a different crew? I can't believe we have to pitch 
with Carl Pavano, who was our starter in a season which was not going well at that time. We had not yet fired Jeff Torborg. That would come a few weeks later. I'll never forget that 20-inning game. That was, uh, that was truly something is all I can say. But thank you for asking me to relive it. One of the toughest losses I recall, if you're going to play 20 and be there for six hours, I recall the game time being over six hours. I don't know what the exact game time was, but it was six hours plus for sure. And uh, it's just, it's untenable. You don't want to lose that. You've blown through your whole pitching staff. They're totally exhausted. You know you're screwed for the next game because you had to pitch your starter, which you don't want to ever do in a game because it throws off the rhythm completely. Of course, for Carl Pavano, he ended up pitching phenomenally for us in the World Series. And uh, that famous game four against Roger Clemens when he held his own and Alex Gonzalez hit the walk-off home run in extra innings, might I add. But that was just a, a heck of a game. I have no idea why you asked that question and why what your memory is of that 20-inning game. But I happen to remember it really, really well. So thank you. Okay. Someone asked me, because of uh, last month, we finished with all of the uh, my top 100 movies. And someone said to me, and I released the last 20 last month, of course, with Fearless being the number one best movie, hard stop, period, my favorite movie. And someone asked, uh, what are your top 10 TV series of all time? Do you have a top 100 list? What are your top 10 TV series of all time? And I wanted to do it. I had never made a top 10 list before, certainly not a top 100 list. I put together a top 10 list, and I would like to go through it with you. And I want to explain something about TV series because this is going to cause some significant debate. And the reason it's going to cause a debate is that much like my movie list, my top 10 TV series list are the top 10 series that I consider the best. Not that they're the most critically acclaimed necessarily. Not that they're the best in anybody's mind. There's no question that it has to do with what you, when you grew up, how much TV you were allowed to watch. My parents, my mom did not let me watch TV really. The only time I could watch is when I would sneak it in when they'd go out when she would go out to dinner or to wherever she would go with her social life. And I, and I would pull up a chair next to the TV because I mean, this is insane. This puts the boom in boomer. Um, there were no remote controls. So you had to turn the TV channel by being next to the TV. So I had to be right there to turn it off because if I would hear the elevator open, that meant that my mother was home again and I had to turn the TV off and go to bed so often I would sneak in TVs and TV series. So I haven't been a real TV guy until the last couple of years when someone finally convinced me, start binging some of these great shows. They're incredible and you missed them. So here you go. The top 10 TV series of all time, number 10. It stars Gavin McLeod, Fred Grandy, A bartender named Isaac, played, I think, by an actor named Ted Washington. Julie McCoy, played by Lauren Tews. You know what I'm talking about. The love boat promises something for everyone. Set a course for adventure, your mind on a new romance. 
And there were all these amazing guest stars. And every Saturday night, I would wait to see who the guest stars were on the love boat. And it was Princess Cruise. It was a cruise line, ironically, now with where cruises are. So they would go on the cruise. It would be filmed. It was the Pacific Princess. I love the love boat. I admit it. You can't find many people who do, but I did. The love boat is number 10. Number nine, set in the place I was born, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with to this day the coolest single character in the history of TV. Forget the fact that he jumped the shark. The expression jumping the shark comes from this series. One of the great directors of our time starred as an actor in this series, Ron Howard. The coolest guy is Henry Winkler. It's called Happy Days. If you had never seen Happy Days, wow, it's good. Do you know that Pat Morita from The Karate Kid used to be in Happy Days? Number nine. Number eight is a show that I'm not embarrassed to tell you I watched every episode. I watched it as it happened, never watched it since. I was knee deep in the stories. I felt like I was in this high school. I wanted to be this popular. I wanted to be this good looking. I wanted to have these girlfriends who were this good looking always. Beverly Hills 90210, not the remake, the original. Beverly Hills 90210 with Jason Priestley and Luke Perry and Shannon Dougherty. I loved it. I admit it. Beverly Hills 90210, never missed an episode. Number seven is Cheers. If you don't have Cheers in your top 10, I don't know what to say because for me, Cheers represents a series, how you can go from people coming and going, the original coach who passed away replaced by Woody Harrelson. I think his name was Nick. I want to say Nick Castellanos, but that can't be. He plays for the, he's the free agent who just signed with the Reds. So that's not his name. Uh, you had Kirstie Alley replace Shelley Long. You had Frazier, Kelsey Grammer. You had George Wendt playing Norm. John Ratzenberger, I think was his name, who played Cliff Clavin. Just brilliant. Ray Perlman. God, she was a firecracker of a woman. Back when it wasn't popular to have women who were firecrackers. And God, was that a good show. Number seven is Cheers. Number six, don't need to talk much about it. My sixth favorite show is Seinfeld. It's brilliant. Jerry Seinfeld deserves all the accolades he gets. So does Larry David, Larry Charles, Jason Alexander, Julie Louise Dreyfus, Kramer, played by Michael, I'm blanking. Can you imagine? He was that guy. I think he went a little crazy and went on that rant and he hasn't really been heard from since. Anyway, Seinfeld is series. Check it out. Number six. Number five is when I started binging and it's called Breaking Bad. I watched it. I binged the entire series start to finish and I thought it would be my number one show, but it ends up being number five, Breaking Bad. Brilliant. Nothing more to say. Number four is a show that I'd like everyone to watch no matter where you are politically. I again had never watched this when it was live. It's called The West Wing. Forget where you are politically because it doesn't matter. It definitely is more liberal leaning no doubt about it. But the point of the West Wing shows what goes on in the West Wing. It shows what goes on with the president and his staff, his chief of staff, how Supreme Court justices get elected in the Senate, how bills are passed. 
you learn so much about how government works. The best part of government is when it does work and when there is mutuality and commonality of interest in Congress, which is not easy to find. And back in the 90s and 2000s when this was happening, people would never have suspected the sort of partisanship that exists now. Is it new? No, that partisanship existed back in the day as well. It's not new. It's always existed. Watch the West Wing, no matter where you are. Now we get to the definition of TV shows. Now we get to the definition of TV shows that I think people will maybe take issue with. But my number three favorite TV series of all time, and this is a series, Saturday Night Live. When you're on every Saturday at 1130, no matter that it's not prime time, that's still a TV series. I think that the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour is a TV series or the Super Friends, the cartoon, that's a TV series. Saturday Night Live, starting with the beginning with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, John Belushi going up till now with Chris Farley in the middle and Adam Sandler and David Spade and Phil Hartman, I could go on. This is a series that has been around and it has been good. Have there been bad seasons? Of course there's bad seasons. Bad episodes, bad segments, of course. Saturday Night Live is number three. Number two, how many people can guess my top two? If you, you should know what it has to be in it, right? You knew Survivor was going to be somewhere. Yeah, Survivor's a series. I've watched Survivor since the day it debuted in 2000, every single Thursday. It was first on Thursdays, then Wednesday. I was in Survivor season 28 for one episode. I got voted off first, but I did it. I applied. I was on the show. God, there's some good Survivor stories, but I've watched it every episode since. Many contestants who don't have a good experience, who lose quickly, they stop watching. Not me. I still watch it, and I think every time I watch a season and the first boot, the first person's voted out, I feel I would go back to that day. Every episode where there's a tribal council, I go back to thinking about watching my torch getting snuffed by Jeff Probst. It is really something when your torch gets snuffed and you realize that what you had wanted to do and what you had wanted to accomplish is done. And there's a lot of symbolism in that because that's how things work in the business world. That's how things work in your personal life. There are many times your torch gets snuffed. And the question is, what do you do the next day? The next day I ate and I drank. And then I figured out how to light that torch again. Survivors number two. And my favorite TV series of all time, MASH. From 1972 to 1983, my favorite episode is called The Joker is Wild. The finale of MASH is called Goodbye, Farewell, Amen. Alan Alda, again, a cast that started with Wayne Rogers, ended up with Mike Farrell, played BJ Honeycutt. There were, it went from Colonel Blake, played by McLean Stevenson, to Colonel Potter, played by Harry Morgan. It's not about politics. It's not necessarily about war. It's about people and relationships. It is about people making the best of a situation where life and death are before their very eyes every single day. It's about not being in control of your own destiny and figuring out what do you do to take control. It's about having a level of confidence in yourself personally and professionally when you are a mobile army surgical hospital and you are a surgeon or a nurse, or a doctor, or a company clerk in that situation, what do you do? Every one of the 200 and, God, there must be 270 episodes. 
I think there's, I, I don't know the exact number, 260, 270, 280, something like that. Every one of them is 23 minutes of written brilliance. I'm thankful for MASH. I'm thankful for it to this day. You can watch the entire series on Hulu, and I hope you do. If you only can watch a few episodes, that's okay. Those are my top 10 TV series. It could change. I think Dave is a TV series episode one. Could that ever crack the top 10? I'm not saying no, but the series isn't necessarily over yet. So thank you for that question. So there's so many more questions to get to. We've got June coming up. We'll do another mailbag bonus pod, I promise. Please continue to rate, review, tell your friends about Nothing Personal. I appreciate and recognize your loyalty and the time that you give to me every day. As I've told you, I don't take it for granted. And for me, it is very personal. Thank you very much. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.